Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Joanna Bucknell and you're listening to episode two of the new sister series, Tate Scholar. Uh, I give pretty comprehensive introductions to the people that I'm talking to in this episode, so I'm not going to repeat those. But what I do just need to draw your attention to is that these episodes were actually recorded back in August, um, just towards the tail end of the first lockdown that we had here in the UK. Um, apologies that it's taken a little while to get these out to you for various very boring reasons that I'm not going to go into and that we are all probably extremely familiar with under the current circumstances but the exciting thing is is that they are recorded uh, the topic discussed is very much sort of COVID based um, so it's still very relevant to the situation here in the UK and I am basically just going to let you get at it so please I hope you enjoy. So hello, and um, uh, as usual, we are gathered on a digital platform at the moment instead of being in person, um, which is a, a bit of a shame, but still brilliant all the same. It's given everyone a chance, I think, to catch up with people they wouldn't normally be able to sort of capture at the same time in the same space. So here we all are on Zoom, and I am with uh, Terry Housen Griffiths, Sarah Hogarth, and James Fries, um, who actually not... Uh, Un uh, unintentionally are all from Liverpool John Moores University uh, which is exciting so hello everyone <laughs> thank you for joining hello. me hello um, and if we start with introductions I thought maybe if we start with uh, Terry if you want to kick us off and just tell us a bit about yourself and what your kind of interest is in immersive performance and then I'll kind of work our way around everybody <laughs> lovely hello well I'm Terry Housen Griffiths uh, I'm a lecturer in drama at Liverpool John Moores University and I first got interested in immersive theatre from a slightly unusual angle to lots of other people um, because I was living in North Wales at the time and we tend to think of immersive theatre perhaps as being London centric a lot of the time or city centric but I came across it through a, a Welsh theatre company, Theatre Clevin, um, who do something they call sensory labyrinth theatre so often in quite magical settings like woods and um, you know castles and disused buildings and all sorts of weird and wonderful places around Wales and also training and taking this work all across across the world as well through its um, director Ewan Briop. So that was how I came at Immersive Theatre from a slightly different angle and then started to discover the other things that people were starting to discover like punishment sounds a little bit later on the game start than other people. Um, and my involvement has mostly been as a performer in Central Albany Theatre, but also doing kind of interesting installation-based work that I've got interested in over the last few years as well. Um, but very much, I'd say mostly embodied practice. I'm really interested in the online stuff, the virtual stuff as well, but um, the, stuff, the things that I tend to do tend to be um, in-person, immersive things. Thank you, Terry. James, uh, would you like to uh, introduce yourself next? Hello, I'm James Freeds. I oh, so the whistle stop tour goes something like this. Um, I did an English degree, and my father died in fairly dramatic circumstances. Um, I then spent sort of went off to do summer camp, teach summer camp in the United States, having done an MA in theatre at Lancaster, where I worked with Baz Kershaw. Uh, Pete Brooks, Jerry Harris, so that was exciting, introducing me to a lot of new kinds of contemporary performance. Um, went to summer camp in America and ended up stay, staying basically for most of the 1990s where I did a PhD 
at the University of Wisconsin-Madison um, and was very fortunate to work with people like Jill Dolan, who wrote Feminist Spectator of Crypto, Sally Baines, who died recently, who's a sort of leading dance and theatre scholar, formerly critic for The Village Voice and the Soho Weekly News, um, and Philip Zerubin, who also died quite recently. Everyone's dying at the moment. But um, the, the reason I'm saying this is because um, I was work, fortunate to work with a lot of people who were bringing a lot of different traditions of performance. So Phil Zarelli was looking at, you know, like psychophysical Asian forms of performance and applying those to the work of Beckett. And we worked a bit Billy, Billy Whitelaw, very famous um, Samuel Beckett actress. Um, and I guess it kind of opens me to the notion of um, traditions. And so... One of the things, one of the reasons that I, I came to be really interested in immersive theatre was this idea that there seems to be a lot of um, quite iconoclastic stuff about how immersive theatre was being framed and kind of destroying the proscenium arch and all that. So I'm really, really interested in the, the idea of tradition and now that immersive theatre in a way is kind of forming itself as a kind of highly contested tradition. And one of the great things about your podcast, Joanna, is the kind of multiplicity of voices and the different angles. I've listened to, to some of, not all of the episodes yet, but some of them, and the kind of contestation of the language is something that I'm really interested in. So mm. I'll leave it there for now anyway, and hand over to, to Sarah. Uh, Sarah is has currently um, stepped away from what I can see. There's, I can just kind of see a chest of drawers and a, a little dinosaur looking at us in her place. <laughs> ah, she's back in perfect timing as well. <laughs> So Sarah, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and what kind of brought you to immersive theatre? Okay, so um, I'm a co-artistic director of a company called All Things Considered Theatre, based in Liverpool. And we create socially engaged performances, but we use immersive methodologies to create that work, um, to create transformational and kind of starting conversations of change etc so we're very interested all our performances are for like five audience members of, at a time um or smaller um a recent piece um we've most of the pieces up until recently have been audio performances promenade walking through the streets of liverpool either following an actor or just two audience members on their own performing for each other using the headphones quite Anne hampton type um inspired um and then those audience members will usually be separated and have one-to-one -one moments so very influenced by one-to-one -one performance and that kind of intimate human connections that people can have and um how nourishing that can be and rewarding that can be that's kind of what we're interested in is that communal kind of an individual kind of experience through our through our work and what brought me to immersive theatre was um, Punch Drunk felt like a clip kiss, I suppose, really, to really seeing that in, I think it was 2009 in Manchester. And for me, um, I, just, I just remember it really blew me away. I'd never really experienced anything quite like that that attacked the senses in such a way and really woke up my, what I like to call my kind of sixth sense, my kind of tribalness kind of, that all kind of kicked in mm. and that feeling, that adrenaline making you just feel so present in the moment um, that I kind of walked away from that experience going, I want to have elements of that within our work where you do 
feels so much like you are you are like bringing people into the moment is really really important as is as it is with all immersive work so that kind of brought me into it and on the degree i teach mostly with um with terry we teach the undergrads um immersive performance um looking at lots of different practitioners and then creating like a festival of work with them and it was interesting this year they a lot of them went down the one-to-one -one route uh-huh which was really nice, which is really good. Um, Terry does a lot of work with them on the senses, which is just really, yeah. And they really hooked into that this year and could really see, because we demonstrate upon them and then get them to demonstrate, they could really experience firsthand the kind of the power of that and the, the way it can trigger memories and transport you to different places. And it was lovely to watch them experiment with. Well, it's interesting you say that as well, because um, I teach, or I'm about to start a new course on immersive theatre at Birmingham. Um, how I'm going to teach that uh, digitally, I'm not entirely sure. Oh. Just yet. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not even going to get into that because uh, that's that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Is how we're going to facilitate our, our teaching moving forwards. But um, yeah, I find that they, they do err towards the kind of small scale or the one-on-one -on -one stuff. And I think maybe some of it's to do with sustainability. You know, it's very unusual to be able to access a space for uh, an extended period of time in the university that you can kind of build or do world building in a really significant kind of scenography based way. And so I find that often the teaching starts to sometimes become about those, those pragmatics and the practicalities of, well, how do we deliver? We can't possibly deliver punch drunk scale work. <laughs> But what we can do is something kind of, I think, that's, that's more about the connections and more about the bodies. Well, that actually leads quite nicely into what I was, wanted to sort of kick off with the questions, really, because, you know, we're talking about the communal experience and intimacy and all of those things. And so I wanted to kind of really get your thoughts on what you think the impact COVID is currently having on kind of immersion, sort of in the now, and what you think that's sort of done to the landscape and the community. Um, so I'm not <laughs> going to kind of pick on anyone here. I'm just going to let you kind of you know, take a minute and, and think about yeah. it and respond to that. Just to sort of say, I just wanted to sort of add a little bit to what, what Sarah and Terry were, were saying um, in the sense of that they are maybe a little bit modest um, in the sense of um, to contextualize the three of us, as you say, we all work in the same department. Mm. Um, Terry and Sarah do pretty much all of the teaching uh, on immersive at the moment. Um, it's we, we've got a new degree starting, in which an undergraduate degree, in which the immersive stuff is going to be embedded, especially for those people who want to specialise in it. Um, I've done quite a few projects which are more site responsive stuff in the past, like in a in a working kitchen where we sort of make meals in the course of the performance and stuff like that. Um, but um, the other thing that I do is I work with the third year students on their kind of, like, to use a really horrible word, employability strategies. And so kind of the work related learning stuff. And one of the things that comes out of that is the range of not just skills, but perspectives that they've got from working with Sarah and Terry in terms of introducing them to something a little bit more complicated than so-called conventional theatre or unconventional theatre. When they work with immersive, they have to kind of invent the rules for themselves, as we, indeed, you know, we especially have to do at this moment, um, as, you know, as we're going to get onto in a second. But I just wanted to say that I think one of the great things for us as a department, and I think it's generally true about what excites the three of us, 
Um, we've all got very, very different interests. I mean, Terry, Terry has talked a bit about the sensory labyrinth work that she's done, but um, I think one of the things that excites us is the energy that immersive stuff brings. Um, and, and in terms of, you talked about intimacy and one-to-one work, um, I just think it's that thing of being able to put on a show without the, the whole, as you say, the whole kind of rigmarole of putting it through 17 different chains of production and preparation. And the idea of having an idea and shortcutting to, to actually staging that and failing with it, which is exciting often. And we're giving, we're giving the students to try stuff out. So in the COVID moment, um, I'm finding, I don't know about, about everyone else, but I'm finding it a bit depressing when I hear people going, how can we, um, you know, because we are, all four of us are, are academics, we're all working in universities as well. How can we try to, you know, simulate or approximate what we normally do? And actually, I'm yeah. sort of sitting here thinking, ideally, we should be going, it's a chance to rip up the rules, which is what us as, you know, immersive um, scholars, practitioners, and people who are just interested in um, kind of bending, shaping, remaking rules. This should be a moment where we come to the fore and also where we have permission to fail, to try stuff out, to encourage students to have that mentality. Because actually, a lot of the time, I think the education system, I don't know what you all think, I think it is quite conservative in what, mm -hmm. you know, like things tight, they like tight structures. And while tight structures are really useful, we should be, we be saying, use these tight structures to make something entirely new. Don't worry too much about failing with stuff. And hopefully, hopefully there are good things that come out of the crisis in that way. I think so too. At Birmingham, we've um, developed a new res uh, resilience um, framework that we're all working within. And we're usually quite a, a sort of traditional institution, but actually the resilience framework's given us a bit more leeway to deliver things with a lot more flexibility and imagination and creativity. Um, obviously, still the practice element of that, we're not entirely sure. We've got contingency plans, obviously, for the, the three different scenarios I think that everybody is considering. Um, but it is, I think you're right, I think it's a moment where we can push back at some of those things I think that have constrained us in our practice. Um, and so it will be interesting to see what different institutions come up with. But I think, again, we're always under this kind of, we're in a very difficult situation now that we're kind of in this sort of marketplace rather than, because scholarship should be about knowledge communities and sharing and best practice and all of that kind of, you know, custodians. And I find that with it being a marketplace, sometimes it's a little bit more kind of secret. And we're not encouraged, I don't think, sometimes to share best practice and to share innovation and creativity mm. because there's an ownership. And it's also not talked about a great deal. I'm probably going to get myself into lots of trouble. Yeah, here. We, we are, <laughs> the three of us are currently developing an MA in immersive performance. And we had that, that conversation you were just talking about um, where you go, how much do you want to approach other universities? Because obviously immersive MAs are, are a big kind of expansive area at the minute. And they're all different. And they're, they're facing challenges in terms of things like um, how do you marry or choose between the kind of technology route, the virtual reality, augmented reality route, and the kind of more low-tech storytelling route? Or are those two things blendable, compatible, or indeed the same thing ultimately? Um, so, but, but you have that thing of going, you feel a bit weird saying to someone, can I find out about your MA? Because it does feel strangely competitive, which is a real shame because academia should be 
about disagreement. We should be excited by disagreement, by doing things differently, by contestation. But because we, it is quite precarious in many ways, and the marketplace makes it more precarious, there is always that slightly defensive quality. But even in just going to someone else and saying, "Can we talk about your MA?" You just feel like there's a, there's a kind of uh, kind of capitalist reserve, you know, in terms of the way that people approach stuff. Mm. And I'm, I've been really lucky because um, obviously Zoo UK do uh, a master's yeah. programme and I'm actually going to, going to be doing a workshop tomorrow with them that's kind of based on that. And I feel really privileged to kind of get the chance to be able to kind of see how other people are kind of managing that, how other people are putting that together, especially with their very particular kind of approach to practice too. So, but you're right, it's difficult because you, it's that precarious situation where you want to find out what other people are doing to see how it kind of how it looks with what you're doing but also to see where those differences are where those things rub against each other but also then you do have we do have responsibility to the institutions that we're employed by <laughs> and the people who pay our rents and our mortgages as well and in the current marketplace for you know positions in our field i think it, you know it makes a very difficult landscape and it is difficult to deliver things in, in more innovative and creative ways, especially with undergrad. I think master's and postgraduate study has a little bit more flexibility in how, because we can have little, well, at Birmingham we certainly can, we can have chunks of time and have students for kind of extended periods and uh, kind of more intensive periods. But with undergrad, especially at Birmingham, we have a lot of joint honours with other things and liberal arts people dipping in and out doing different modules so trying to say well actually I'd like to have these students for two weeks in this site I mean we do have a couple of modules that do that with our single honours but it's difficult to do that kind of across the board at undergraduate usually I don't know if it's the same way well yeah it's massive and especially I mean we'll get on to the whole how how has Covid affected you know uh, stuff outside the academy but in terms of working in a university trying to do any any sort of drama theatre degree, the timetabling is a nightmare. You have a joint honours student, at the moment, we're being told we can have four contact hours with our students. That's what we should be having next year. How do you do that with a joint honours student? Because if we have four contact hours, that means you're teaching basically small groups. Uh, you're spending a lot more hours teaching a module because you're having to do the same thing three or four times, potentially, and that, that is a model. And then how does that work for, for, for a student doing drama and creative writing who is being pulled in other directions? You want, you know, so the whole, the, the sort of, and our timetable works in three hour blocks or has done. So there's, there's a lot of, we're looking at, at, at ways to make timetabling more creative. It's challenging for those of us who have kids as, you know, three of the four of us do. And you kind of think um, there, there, has, there has to be a moment here which is going to be useful for the future. I think working at home has been, working from home has been massively undervalued within the academy um, for a long, long time. Because often, not always, but often, if you're not in rehearsals and you're not in classes, you can get more done at home than you can sitting in an office with loads of other people. Um, and, and I hope that some of that energy, you know, the energy that you can get from isolated working, there are negative elements to it, clearly, in terms of communality. But the energy that can come from that, where people have the kind of, ability to focus on something in some detail from different locations and then come together. How we organize that, the idea of using independent work then coming together to share that work rather than just going home to do your homework. You know, I just think there, there could be new creative models coming out of that. 
I agree. And hopefully some of our sort of central bodies like uh, SCUD and TAPRA will start to share some of that practice as well so that we can all kind of, because we're often in drama, having to fight our cases with institutions um, for the way that we do things and for our approaches. And so I think sometimes it is helpful to come together to be able to put forward a case that gets the institutions to sort of understand what it is that we do and our needs and our innovation, <laughs> I think. So I hopefully we can do that. Well, go on. Sorry, I was going to say I did a really interesting workshop with Digital Theatre Plus because I was feeling, I was really feeling quite anxious going, how on earth are we going to teach some of this stuff online? How do you teach movement and voice, you know, and, and play text work online? And this workshop that they ran, I, by the end of it, I actually felt really optimistic. <laughs> um, I and, think I you know, done that, that one. Yeah, it was just that sense of sort of going, well, embrace embrace the frame. It's not it's not the same, and it's not better. It's just different. Um, and I think actually it's something we're really good at doing in drama. We are very good at problem solving and finding alternative solutions. I think it's one of the strengths of our graduates. I'm sure you probably feel it the same for your graduates too. Is that they you give them a problem and chances are they'll go okay how do they work around this what what's possible and I think we've seen that in, with artists more generally in terms of COVID and the work I've been following the homemakers program at home in Manchester quite closely and yeah. some of the variety of work I thought it was all going to be just really like lots of videos and actually there's a huge variety of work that's been on offer so I'm, I'm diving in now to bits and pieces of things and many of it as well as it it's pays you field kind of work as well so it allows you know perhaps those who don't have the finances right now to go and pay for the theatre and you know for this kind of art artistic practice it means that they can do so so I spent the most lovely 15 minutes with Bryony Kimmings in my house through her piece um which is called something like I'm falling in love with you and it's making you do stupid things or something like that um I mean, Bryony Kimmings is one of my favourite artists at the minute. I think Sarah shares this as well. We talk a lot about Bryony Kimmings and we've seen quite a few of her pieces. And that intimacy of her work and in the same style and the way she uses her songs and the autobiography and seems to play with the relationship with the audience was just fascinating. And then there's other pieces that are kind of more game-based, I guess, more in the popular vein of immersive work that we tend to see. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's other things that seem quite improvisational that you get postcards sent to your home. Um, a piece I'll read in that, I think it's called um, Tell Me or something by Chris Thorpe and You Swerve or Sam or somebody like that. Um, mm -hmm. It was a game that you can play with two friends and the variety of stuff's fascinating. And that's left me feeling quite encouraged mm -hmm. actually practice for this year. Um, the thing that concerns me the most for students particularly is the equitability of their access to the internet and I think we've all experienced this with students who don't have laptops, don't have uh, you know safe working environments or maybe don't have a working environment at all mm. sharing their spaces um, you know quite intimately with other family members who they might not have spent time with like that before um, so it's not all happy situations for people being at home and I think that's the, the thing that's concerning, isn't it, about those who perhaps, and I've thought about this a lot in terms of immersive theatre, the equitability of immersive theatre sometimes with the cost of ticket prices and where the work's located, that it has the potential to further extend some of those um, gaps between people and the barriers between people. So that's probably the thing that's worrying me the most at the minute. 
And I think that's a concern that is shared by the community. I've been to a couple of events um, over this period with the immersive community that are based in London. And that's very much their fear. They don't want to step back to being too expensive, to being too exclusive, to not being diverse, to not being accessible, because there is a real danger of the current situation pushing us sort of back 10 years in some of the practices, which I think is a shame. Sarah, I wanted to ask you, because obviously you, you know, you have a company and you work with your company and what has been the sort of immediate impact on your practice really? Well, we've been having many conversations about this because we do use a lot of audio and kind of bioral sound and we are interested in that. And I know there's some great work that you can do and I'll come on to that in a moment, but we've found ourselves having in quite an uncomfortable position because we started creating this work as kind of a response to digital um, digital relationships and social media and as a as creating work where you've got humans in a space together to have face-to-face -face interactions. So then to start thinking, well, how can we start creating in this, this new COVID world that we're living in? How can we um, experiment and be creative with digital media? And we've, we have come up with quite a few ideas, but then we just come back to the same place of, yeah, but wouldn't it be better if they were sitting opposite each other, really actually were together and they could teach each other? Wouldn't it just be better? Um, so our next piece, which is funded by the Arts Council, is called Sleepover. And it's um, based on mine and Emma, Emma Bramley, who's the other co-director's experiences of being teenagers in 1989 and 90. And it was an immersive event that brought, it was aimed at really women in like 35 plus as a nostalgic kind of hour of escapism, going back to your teenage days, just the good bits, the fun bits, and <laughs> escaping from kind of the responsibilities of life, escaping from the bills, the work, etc. It kind of starts with mine and Emma's voice on the audio, on the Walkmans, talking about how we can't come and sleep over because we, we, we've got kids and, you know, we've got to get them to bed. Oh, maybe we could get babysitter, all this kind of thing. And then it goes into you, you, you're with these four young women who are representing kind of teenagers and you go off on a rebellious kind of hour with them, which originally started outside an off-license and then you got into the car with the dad, then you got dropped off at the house, a real house, and it all happened in there and then you, you were left to go. Um, and we just thought, we met in a park in June and went, Is it, do you think people will come? Do you think people are going to be more scared of that? of like touching a car, even though we'll do everything to clean it and everything and going into a strange house, do you think people's mentality is gonna be different? So we've done the very opposite now, we're having a studio piece in the Unity Theatre in Liverpool for 12 people at a time. And so now we're exploring how do we make that experience immersive? But it's also given us loads of tools to be theatrical within that, because we're gonna be in a theatre space. So we're actually really loving it, but it's really, important for us that they get to touch our letters they get to touch the old just 17s oh my that does bring back memories sorry listeners you can't see this but it, it's like the best <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> sorry i've been doing some writing i've been doing some writing this morning um so it's in all those elements are really important we're doing it in june 2021 um so who knows what the landscape will be like like then but that's important to us and we're going to give them some alcohol obviously if they you know there's an offer of all of that there's all different things 
Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if we're going to be able to do the things that we love doing that we think adds to the experience of, of our work. But um, yeah, the, I did something recently, um, Dark Field Radio. Has anyone done that? I haven't done it, but lots of people have talked about it. Yeah, that was, oh, I really enjoyed that. And that inspired me a little bit after seeing that and going, actually, that was just a brilliant 20 minutes. The kids, like, were in the house. I was able to do it with my friend. I didn't have to, for someone who can't always go to the theatre because I'm a single mum, so it's like babysitters, etc. It was like, this, that was actually really amazing that I could, could do that in my kitchen with my mate. It was, so there's so many other things. It's like, if we could keep this kind of really interesting offer going as well. Do you know, and I've also enjoyed watching like lots of um, other offers that I've been on, but more live theatre stuff, just being able to watch it from home because of our lifestyles. So it's, it's, it's an interesting time, but there's a res there is a resistance from me only because I do love having people in the space because you can read them, it's really important the actors can read them, engage the temperature of the space, the tone, of the, the mood of the room and how to work the people and how to encourage and tease. A lot of ours is about um, the audience and the performers interacting directly with each other, where they take over as a role of facilitator almost, but in character. So it's important to be in the space to be able to do those kind of live interactions and tease that information or back off or, you know. So that's, so we, we're loath to get rid of that completely. We wanna work out ways, how can we bring people back? into seeing each other. And I think, sorry. No, I was just going to say that I thought that was all really interesting, Sarah. And I think um, we are very mindful as academics that we are privileged in the sense that we have jobs. And, and while it's, hard, it's very, very hard for sort of sessional academics, those of us who are on permanent contracts, we are very privileged. And I think one of the things that I think we are all concerned about uh, our graduates you know we had a virtual graduation ceremony in which the sort of future immersive theatre makers are all sitting there on zoom in these thumbnails the sort of 60 odd of them there and at the end of the graduation the host of the zoom meeting said we'll just leave it open so you can all chat and there was this horrible sense of what now which kind of encapsulated the what now that we're all feeling I think but I think Sarah touched on the idea of mindset, because I, I was watching The Prison the other day, the, the Les Enfants and um, piece, which is definitely worth a watch. And it's the sort of, they're having fun with kind of making participatory TV, if you like, and it's a bit Black Mirror in certain kinds of ways. Um, and bits of it make you go, that's a brilliant idea. Um, I wish, you know, we could take that further, et cetera. But I love the fact that people are trying all these different things and having fun with trying stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm about to do Darkfield Radio, I'm really looking forward to that, which is the kind of Nathan Rosenberg thing. And I just go, my, I guess our focus largely is on our graduates. A couple of our recent graduates, Ivan Kelly and Tom Florence, just did a piece at the Buxton Fringe called the Affinity Initiative which I don't know a great deal about, but uh, it's just won an award for their work at Buxton. And it's brilliant that, you know, in, as I say, I think a lot of the people who've done Terry and Sarah's immersive theatre class have got this kind of can-do attitude, that there is no normal for them in terms of making theatre. 
Um, and hopefully, you know, the resilience that you're talking about, I don't know if you found this when you met with people in the immersive community, but that resilience is something that immersive theatre makers have to have, don't they? Because it's always about being flexible, dynamic, pragmatic, dealing with stuff, which is never the same twice. Mm -hmm. I agree that, that and I think that that attitude is very much there the big question I think on everybody's lips because everyone has create come up with creative innovative ways to engage online to and now are starting to put plans in place to exactly that get people back in into spaces because there's something that's magical about that right at the heart of our discipline regardless I think of immersion um, but the big question and, and for us as academics as well isn't it that we're in that br taking a breath in at the moment and going well if we do these exciting things if we develop our curriculum if we make this kind of work will they come and what will the mindset be for that and uh, the demographic is often slightly different as well for immersive um, theatre than kind of more venue based work um, so I think there's a lot of people who sit within the kind of the high risk category who I think are going to take a long time to get their confidence back to return to kind of the velvet seats um, but I think we're in a slightly different space. But yeah, everyone is asking that. That's the big, it's not, can we do it? It's like, yeah, we can do this and we can do that and we can do loads of really exciting things, but will they come? <laughs> so Terry, what did you kind of think about that as what everyone is asking? <laughs> yeah, well, the most exciting thing for me when I first started getting into immersive theatre was the proximity and particularly the proximity to strangers. That was what made the experiences often so thrilling and so exciting that you were there, you know, sat, I remember going to Entregoard, the smile off your face in Salford in Larry, Larry, the Larry, um, Larry studio in 2009 and sitting opposite this, you know, this one of the male actors less than a metre from each other and we're staring at each other and then, you know, we're laughing and talking and then they're crying and then you're being wheeled out of this Face. I don't want to give too many spoilers to it because they still tore it and <laughs> if you haven't seen it you should and do it um but you know that was one of the most I didn't know theatre could do that sort of things I mean since I was 15 there's been many moments as I came through I, I grew up in Blackpool my experience of theatre was mostly you know panto and then things that came to the winter garden so you know I remember seeing Blood Brothers um you know and things like the inspector calls i guess you know things that we think of as fairly typical for people to know and, and come through the theater so yeah i remember the first time i sat in theater fluid in mold seeing a volcano theater doing their rendition of romeo and juliet and going there's cameras on the stage what there's three actors doing romeo and juliet four actors doing romeo and juliet how is it possible and all those moments you go through and it was the same scene on go piece again wow theater can be like this and the proximal aspect was, for me, one of the strongest aspects, the confessional aspects. I think that was why, you know, the late Adrian Howell's work was, you know, so revered because of what he was able to draw from people without, you know, um, without seeming to be manipulative in that sense. Um, but it requires, requires trust. It requires a build-up of a relationship. And... I'm not saying you can't do that online because I think you can and as I say the Bryony Kings piece that I did was just fantastic and if you haven't done it it's 15 minutes well spent to do it um but there is something about presence isn't there mm. that's really powerful in this work and I think people like Josephine kind of talked immensely well about things like presence within both digital virtual work as well as physical work 
Um, so I guess it's just how you capture that. How do you get somebody to not feel anxious, like you say, those people who are perhaps vulnerable at risk, to go, you're safe in this space, that you know you can feel trusted. I mean, I think immersive practitioners are so used to working with challenges anyway. You know, when you introduce taste into performances and going, right, is this vegan? Is it gluten? Who can have this? How do you make the offer so people know it's not enforced? You know, all those sorts of things. How do you make sure it doesn't deter from the performance if somebody doesn't choose to take that offer? How do you make sure, as Sarah and I have talked about this, how do you make sure somebody doesn't feel left out if they can't take up an experience? Is there something else that you, you offer them instead? Um, and it's those bits that to me are what make the immersive so immersive if you've got touch, taste, proximity, and they're the most challenging things right now to try to deal with. Um, but I, I have every confidence that performers will, will figure this out. You know, the way that they have to, you know, you reset things in your little intimate one-to-one space before the next person comes in. You know, perhaps you'll need a bit more time to do it before you can, you know, have to distance things out a bit. Um, so we might need a bit of generosity from our communities to go, how, how do we make that work financially? Um, as well as within timeframes to do that sort of thing. So there are challenges, but I just, I just think I feel very optimistic and hopeful that artistic practitioners are used to dealing with these issues. I mean, I came out of university just before the last recession that we had in 2008. So I was just started my master's programme and found myself uh, redundant from a job very quickly and then panicking and trying to find myself other work. And at that point it was working in the retail sector whilst I was still studying. Um, and I think having had that experience, I feel like we can offer reassurance to students to sort of go, yes, it's going to be really hard. We're coming out into a very difficult graduate market and we know that the arts has struggled and not had the financial support, you know, and it's never had amazing financial support, but even that's not come back to pre-last recession levels. So I think we can offer optimism to go, well, look, you know, me from Blackpool still got to be here in an academic institution. And it perhaps took slightly longer um, than it would have done otherwise. You know, I had to work part time and do all sorts of interesting things. But all those interesting jobs that I did whilst I was trying to get my PhD, I've never been lost because it's all those things as an immersive practitioner about how do you have a conversation with someone when you're a cleaner and how do they treat you and what I learned from how people spoke with me um, when I was doing that work. There were assumptions of me very often surprised when I spoke and had very good English. I even had people comment on that. Very surprised that I apparently seemed to be my native born English. They assumed that I wouldn't be. And all those things. Um, having to do telephone calls at the university where I worked, I was doing telephone calls for the HE, the higher education surveys and things like that. Um, those skills are not lost because actually now having a telephone conversation with an audience might be something we need to do again. <laughs> in an intimate way you know so it's not all about screens um i'm gonna ask sarah what was the name of that piece um that we did the phone exercise with the students because that always has a massive impact upon them and it's the one that you did the exercise with them on me with you is it collider no yeah do you want to say something about that because i think just as an alternative to screens that piece was oh no 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 i know which one you mean sorry i wish i was lonely i wish i was lonely chris, chris brilliant yeah chris or is it hannah kelly hannah yeah, we, 
we 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 recreate i i very badly take on the, the role of chris thorpe and facilitate three moments from that performance for them to, to, to discuss kind of agency and what's their role within the performance and are they, um, does it really matter if they're there or not? Will the play, will the performance continue with, with or without them? But they love using their phones. They loved, and I remember doing the performance and we did, everyone in the audience loved it, loved receiving a text message off somebody and the excitement of leaving the building and listening to that voice message that somebody had left you. It was, that was a really interesting kind of um, platform for a performance. And I do think that people, there could be something that you could create with mobile phones. And I know people do anyway. Um, that could be, could be quite interesting about connections and intimacy. What was the one with um, Blast Theory? Do you think it was Karen? No, the other one was at the day of the figurines and you kept getting oh, messages, yeah. and they'd inter oh, yeah. they'd messages would interrupt you and you, you might be having your tea and then this message <laughs> would come and it was like this kind of other world interrupting your everyday mundane world, this other thing that was carrying on in a parallel universe, which was really interesting. So there is, there, there is stuff that you, yeah. Is that what, is that what you were talking about, Terry? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, said, I said the right thing. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I think you're right because again, um, a lot of the practitioners I've been talking to are really interested in getting back to more analog things. It's kind of funny because, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, but everything I've done, kind of in terms of digital performance, has been through Zoom. But everyone I've spoken to said they're really interested in going back to really simple things like roof crosses. Um, letters that you write to yourself or postcards or something that has something and again I think it's that it's that yearning isn't it to be in contact in contact yeah. through, through, the, through through embodied materiality mm. in some way and so there I think there is this desire to go back to picking up a phone and, and your voice meeting somebody else not just across this kind of sort of uh, frame but there's an intimacy. I know you do audio work, so you know this. There's a, there's a real intimacy in voices kind of meeting in that way. And I think there is a real appetite now to go, okay, let's actually look back at some of these more historical and iconic practices who sort of built our discipline of immersion and look at some of those things that they did and how can we draw on some of those and renew some of those things and some of those ways of making contact. So I guess that leads me really into um, my next question, which is really, and we've already talked about it a little bit, but what have you kind of come across that's been being produced during this period by immersive practitioners um and has it been like me i've done lots lots of things i'm um, not initially because i felt a bit uh, paralyzed actually initially by all of this but once i kind of managed to kind of go okay there is going to be kind of moving forwards um i've mostly encountered zoom sort of based things some really great shows but mostly zoom so i wanted to kind of find out what you've if you've uncovered anything really exciting any little gems if there's anything obviously briny kimmings as well <laughs> but yeah just throw that out to you guys really i've already kind of touched on it but i think Darkfield radio was probably the most interesting thing i know emma from the company did the tim crouch um performance his version of Shakespeare. And she loved that. She said it was really sophisticated, really intelligent. Um, and the one thing that I didn't do, which I wish I had done, was the, um, the opening of the letters to um, my best, my white best friend. Mm -hmm. that, was that the name of it? I don't want to get the name wrong. I think 
Um, is that, did anyone else do that? I know that no. it's um, letters to my white best friend and it was um, black artists writing a letter to their white best friend and then did a lot of different um, performers did, hadn't read it, hadn't seen it. They opened it there and then and they, um, they read out what it, what, what it said, what was inside the letter. And she said it was really powerful. And um, like there was some really quite famous people reading them out, like Anne-Marie Duff. Um, and it was just like, re yeah, really insightful, really powerful. And she said what was interesting was kind of, re they were all a lot, you were on mute, mute so you couldn't respond to it. And it was kind of clever because it's kind of parallel to with feelings and emotions that are within these kind of letters. And also she said, you, you could see people were like worried to cry because they felt like it wasn't their teeth. Like, did they have the right to cry and get emotional about what was, what was being said? So she, I think for, I'm, I'm living my life through Emma. <laughs> she, she, for my friend, she, she kind of said that's probably the most interesting thing that she's watched. And she wouldn't have got the chance to see that because it was in London if mm. it wasn't for this scenario. But I wish I'd done that. I really wish. I think that is a good point. Um, I'm the same I've been able to do so much more kind of conferencing conversations attend performances and that I just would not one financially have been able to do um without the situation being what it is and the time as well you know I can sort of because I'm not having to travel I'm not having to get anywhere I can sneak off so that's been one of the real sort of perks in a way of being able to access way more than I would normally have the facility to be able to do I think that's right. And um, I think that all the stuff we've discussed brings up a lot of questions about access. Um, and foregrounds, you know, the, the different um, kinds of challenges that people find, whether it be financial, technological, um, personal, in terms of, you know, where you're living. Um, I just, I think there is a lot to, that is instructive about the moment that we're in, although feels a bit longer than a moment right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's instructive in the sense of it's making us think about these kinds of communication. I, I um, wrote about the I Wish I Was Lonely piece that Sarah was talking about, Chris Thorpe, Hannah Jane Walker, and loved it as well. And I keep thinking about this piece during lockdown because it is about contactability and in a sense about always being available. And that sense of... Um, our attention and how our attention and patterns of attention are changed by engagement with digital media is something that at the moment has really foregrounded. We're thinking about this stuff a lot. We're thinking, like you say, Joanna, about the difference between a, a, a normal phone call and a Zoom call, which has become the new normal. And that, that sort of sense of when you forget that you're distanced and when you feel like you're in the room. And I think Terry's thing about taste and, um, and touch, when she interviewed at John Moore's, her, her interview involved a presentation about taste and touch. We were saying yesterday that, you know, there's no way she could have done that interview in the, in the current circumstances and how sad that was because it, it made such an impact on the students who were there as well. But I just think it's, it's making us think about stuff we haven't thought about in terms of the kind of different ways that we communicate. And I think that is positive. Um, and and com companies like Coney are you? with kids which is quite simple and beautifully simple in a way kind of quizzes and things like that which are kind of free to use using the digital but um, as we were just discussing using the digital in ways that invite you to do the analog stuff in your own home 
And I think bringing theatre into people's little bubbles is kind of embedding theatres and theatre companies and let's uh, let's be honest, kind of names like Coney and kind of introducing people to names they might not have heard of um, in a way that could be extremely useful going forward. I just think, as I'm sure has been discussed in your, your kind of meetings, Joanna, um, it's just really, really hard given how precarious making a theatre is and being a freelance artist is, as a lot of people are. It's just really hard to see this as a moment because it's going on a, a hell of a long time <laughs> and there is no, it's just a lack of certainty. I think that's the thing. And I can't, although I'm trying to be positive about stuff, I kind of go, the certainty is the thing that I'm struggling with because I think we're spending a lot of time and invest, people are getting exhausted thinking about what's ahead. I think that's the thing. There is definitely a kind of sense of um, that resilience is challenged by the uncertainty that lies ahead. I think so too. I think uncertainty is, is the biggest kind of barrier at the moment. And this idea of burnout as well, because you're having to just keep developing your kind of innovation, your creativity under lots of different scenarios. But there does come a point when you're kind of like, well, there's going to need to be an end point at some point because we need to know <laughs> how, how we're going to move forward with this and how we're going to deliver it. And I think you're right. People are working, especially um, a lot of immersive uh, folk are working in very precarious situations so some of the companies of course who are much more established have been very fortunate in getting some of the arts council funding i think some of the emergency funding and have been able to to produce output that's been very very accessible or free a lot of the time but i think for performers this has been really challenging because they're not in kind of that position and are struggling and i think that's what I'm seeing a lot of is that some of the more established folk are managing to sort of find creative and innovative ways kind of through this. But my other worry then is that we're going to actually have lost a lot of people along the way because it's not, like you said, it's not a moment. It's, it's going on and on. And I think people were struggling and kind of pushing to get by, but I think we are going to see, unfortunately, a lot of talent. And again, talking about graduates, how long can they hold? Hmm before they have to kind of um, inverted commas get a proper job and be able to feed themselves because you can only kick it down the line so long i'm the same as you terry i did <laughs> endless amounts of crazy jobs right from being at college all the way up to once i actually got my first academic job <laughs> but they're all part of it and i stuck at it um but i had i had like a, a stable family to to go home to and to be kind of behind me and I, I worry how many people will not be able to sustain as we kind of move through this, what is becoming much more than a moment. <laughs> yeah, I went, I did a virtual conference. It was a working class conference a couple of weeks ago. And first of all, I was encouraged by how many working class academics there are, or those who've come from a working class background, um, and the tensions that lie in that, that made me feel much more at home in academia because I think as we all feel sometimes the ivory tower feels very unlike many of us um, and quite exclusory and I think one of the conversations that I've been having the last few weeks with friends and other and artists is to think about where we place value on things mm -hmm. and you know the governments around the university um, you know where they place value on degrees is often around um, the salary that you earn after your degree and we know that for artists most of them won't earn amazing salaries they will 
if they're lucky, if they're lucky, they will get to get by. And I think I read something recently said that the average salary for an artist in the UK is £7,000. Average. <laughs> so that means there are some people earning even less than that, which is incredibly depressing. So that's not livable, livable as a salary. So we know that they're going to be doing multiple jobs and other things as well as trying to be an artist. But my thought was about, but it's about how we place value on that sort of thing, because if we say what an artist is worth, if, you know, the organisations and the structures declare the sort of salaries and how we value that work, um, then that has an impact upon those salaries. It's like, well, somebody decides the salary payment, actually, about who gets to be paid what and what it's worth. And I use that in, in quotation marks. Um, so some of that needs reconsidering massively. I mean, in the UK, the arts get very little government funding compared to most other European countries, um, certainly. And, you know, that we know that a lot of immersive work can be time consuming, expensive for smaller audience members. And I mean, I've had conversations with people from the Arts Council and I hope this doesn't get me in trouble, but somebody saying, oh, but digital, digital, because you can get it to so many more people. When I was talking about immersive work, it's like but sometimes it's about quality, isn't it? And about the right experience for the right person. Um, and what that does, might I think. Numbers is, is, is something that's mentioned a lot, this idea. Unfortunately, the Arts Council is it, a big measure. Mm -hmm. And it's the same for us, isn't it, with impact? Um, the dreaded ref word, <laughs> but numbers and rather than value and quality. And I, I wonder sometimes I'm like, well, what about Adrian <laughs> yeah. and Adrian's work and the amount of lives that he touched um, doing the work that he did and the value and the quality of that. And it worries me that in with digital being available, that that's another problem that we'll have is that people will say, well, well do it on Zoom. You can, you know, can reach 150 people in, in one go and you can reach thousands of people if you do like a, an app or a game or something downloadable. Um, and so, yeah, the focus becomes, and it's the same at universities. I've had, I've, over the last couple of years, done a lot of funding applications. Um, I might add as well, not all, mostly not successful. <laughs> Which again is something not talked about in our field, particularly, is all our failures, the many, many, many failures of those things. Um, but the first question that always gets asked, and again, this is not just the institution I'm at, but other institutions I've been at, why are we paying the artist £200 a day? Why is this cost in here? And it's like, because that's what they cost. But it's always queried. Those things, fees, creatives fees, artists fees, I don't know if you've had this similar experience, but they're always queried and I think maybe it's time to push back and try to say no actually the value well one people need to be paid in a way that is commensurate with the landscape and what we do and we need to actually not really be questioned on that but possibly supporting that and pioneering that I think in academia and also I think quality and value but it's how we have you know it's, it's difficult to have an impact on how impact is measured. <laughs> also, I know people. Go on. I was just going to say, I know people who've said things like, well, you know, if, if it doesn't make sense, if the value, you know, if it gets too expensive, then it shouldn't work out. And you go, but, well, who gets, why do you get to decide that? <laughs> you know, mm. who gets to have that conversation to go, well, it's not worth it. And you say, well, most for most of us, I think what's got us through this pandemic 
has often been artistic practice. I've enjoyed live free con concerts from you know musicians at home who are performing. The bookshop band in particular, if they uh, if you're into that sort of folky music, uh, they've been doing weekly um, concerts. Uh, another one of my folk artists, Winter Mountain, doing you know concerts every Wednesday and sort of go. They do it because that's, I think for a lot of artists, the act of doing is what gives them the right to call themselves an artist. So when they don't do that stuff, they perhaps don't feel like an artist. Um, it's a conversation I've had with several of my friends, sort of going, what makes, what makes you an artist? What, who gets to decide you're an artist? What, what makes that happen? And also just that I think most artists are quite, I've found are quite generous people. They want to share, they want people to feel better when they're going through this horrendous time they go, well, maybe I can put a song out there that might might just take people away from things for a little bit, you know, or they can watch this and, and do that, you know, all sorts of free content going out there. And you sort of go, well, it might be free at the point of accessing it, but there's a cost somewhere that artists mm. have to pay their bills. You know, if you want yeah. them to do that live concert streaming to your home, they have to be able to afford the four walls that are surrounding them. And you know, shouldn't necessarily be forced into situations where they're sharing, you know, with people that they don't like. Not everyone wants to share a flat, not everyone wants to live with, you know, family when they're in their 30s or 40s and beyond, you know, it's what's what's acceptable, what do we, what do we think's right? And I think immersive, one of the things I think is really good at getting us to question that because we get to do it individually in small numbers, that you have those moments of really deeply asking those questions. So I think immersive is going to be really vital as we come out of this to go, we had the pause button for, for a little tiny bit, not for everybody, some people working incredibly hard through this entire time, but for those of us who did have the pause button, genuinely, what do we want things to, to look like going forward? Most people I'm, I'm hearing are saying they don't want things to go back to how they were entirely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think that, um that we have a responsibility as universities as well um, to continue to think about our relationship to the production of art and not just think that our responsibility to students finishes when um, the students leave the, you know, and go out into the world. We're really good at talking about what alumni can do for us. We're not necessarily mm. always great at talking about what we can do for alumni, especially I think there's a bit of a trade-off too in disciplines like theatre and related arts whereby we um, get on with our stuff often in the cracks so that the, our institutions don't always have a full picture of what we're doing, which is great because we can kind of do things in strange spaces and all this. But the trade-off of that is it's not always visible in terms of the value um, and just, just little things like a lot of our students and graduates contribute to the university by making videos about the university and all this stuff free of charge. And, and there is a lot of labour in the, in the theatre arts, which I don't think is always accounted for in terms of the value that that adds to universities. Um, there's, there's an organisation um, which I was involved with a little bit called Incubate Pro Propagates. Incubate Propagate started by Liz Tomlin and it's kind of being run by Jocelyn McKinney and other people, which is looking at the relationship between arts funding bodies like the Arts Council, independent producers of theatre and universities. And one of, one of the things that really came across uh, when I attended one of their workshops was 
how there's this very rosy view that artists and producers have of academia that we're all doing whatever we want bringing in whoever we want and kind of we've got endless resources and all this knowledge and we're sitting around in our office with with our tweed jackets on you know stroking our beards going yes i think i'll bring in bring in brimey kennings and do a residency this week and and it's just the reality is as joanna joe as joe talked about before it's it's that thing of we're all fighting our own little battles in our own marketplace being quite competitive necessarily so about preserving you know preserving our jobs preserving stuff for our departments preserving stuff for our graduates um and i think within that that preservation um it does occur to me that we have to kind of make visible the labor that the arts do on behalf of you know education generally not just our own institutions but as well as having those conversations in SCUD, it is about that kind of thing of how you talk across the disciplines and how you, you know, you, we find out more about what's going on in sciences and stuff, and they find out more about what, what we're doing. And mm-hmm. we have those conversations about labour and between current students and graduates. And I think that has to be strengthened as well, massively, because we have some resourceful graduates, but I don't think we have done enough to talk about the relationship between doing a degree and what happens next. And I think that's gonna become even more important now that our responsibility doesn't finish. What they can do for us and what we can do for them, I think needs to be investigated and kind of strengthened a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think undergraduate people who've just graduated from all universities in this kind of field, that in some ways it's quite, yeah, it is a terrible time, but it could be also quite an exciting time like we're all quite stuck in our ways. Like I've already said, oh, I'm really resistant, the integrity of my work, I don't, I don't really want to move to a different platform. Whereas when you're just starting out as an artist, you haven't got those things dragging you back so much. So I suppose my advice to people just, who are just graduating is, is be really experimental with what is available and kind of at this moment in time, kind of embrace it embrace embrace what this could this could be and we probably will and we will go back to think the way things were it's like it's just a moment in time and things will kind of but like embrace this and this new hybrid of what this could maybe turn out to be and i think they have less of the kind of shackles that we we have to maybe be fresh to this and yeah i think that it could it, this could be an exciting time for, for artists new new emerging artists and as we know as well as academics, the real change comes out of crisis. Uh, yeah. Paradigm shifts come out of crisis and moments where there's friction and moments where there's trouble. And so I suspect, yeah, that's the best advice to give to give our graduates is, you know, jump in feet first mm-hmm. and take, take risks because yeah. you can at the moment. And it's exactly the time to as well and take ownership of some of these things. And I think we are going to see more hybrid forms coming out of this and I, I don't know if you find this but sometimes there'll be kind of events at the college and I'll kind of go to things and I'll accidentally speak to someone who happens to be in the medical school but turns out actually they're working on this particular thing which is actually about immersion and it's haptics and it's about VR and so you it's, it's kind of our institutional structures I think sometimes also shackle us and bind us because you're like oh my god there's people doing really exciting innovative technical things that have so many synergies with what we're doing over in our little kind of drama rooms <laughs> on our little part of the campus but 
it's so hard to seek out the opportunities, especially when you're fighting all your own little battles, holding on to all of those little things, developing all those little things. But actually, even just in our own institutions, I think there's a lot of exciting synergies and things that are happening. But the opportunity is to, to bring those together and also to, I'd be like, why can't my, my undergrads go and do a module in the med school if they're doing this kind of work and seeing the possible, I mean, it's so difficult isn't it and but it's how to facilitate that and how to keep yeah. those relationships going as well i mean i think you're right go on sarah no i was just agreeing with you it's it's amazing that we're all in these universities but we are in these bubbles and it's kind of when you create like imagine if we could just send them to do a module as you say in the med school like we should be able to do that that's the time to do it when you are we're all in the the same building doing the same it's yeah, we need to get better at this don't we we need to get better at communicating and talking and yeah so well, maybe the, the cathedral of zoom will give us the space yeah. because we physically have to send people james go on yeah no i was just going to say i think that's absolutely right and i think that it's about sustaining the energy we might not be able to sustain sustain the kinds of work that were happening before the lockdown but we can sustain the energy and the way that we use the new platforms and the new kind of structures and constraints can be a model of best practice for disciplines. I know that might sound a bit arrogant on behalf of drama and stuff or performance, but I think it is, it, it always is, and it will continue to be. And one of the things that, um, that the thing about working, because I'm now very old and have been at John Moore's University for a very long time, um, I have started, I put together a funding application last year for a network grant which was very much about looking at um, something called forensic aesthetics it's just about the obsession with evidence which is a big part of immersive theatre as you know um, in, in all kinds of different uh, immersive work but it's also an obsession culturally so I'm interested in, in how those collaborations for example um, in having to put together a funding application which they're usually unsuccessful, as you rightly say, and that doesn't get talked about. But having to put them together, even if they're unsuccessful, and I've not yet heard about ours, but um, you, you do get to meet loads of people because you have to get this thing done. And I met this woman in criminology who has got this whole wing of the university that I don't think the university knows about, which is basically um, she is doing crime scene reconstruction in this whole university which is not being used um, the university does know about it i should say for, for ip issues and anything else but um she, she really potentially fascinating collaborator who's not coming from theater but she was a, a police detective in the lapd los angeles and she is a leading campaigner for kind of um trans rights um within the, the u.s police force and she's doing all this stuff and she's really interested in using theatre artists to do these crime scene reconstructions, but also to help to train police officers um, to, to work in the kind of interface between the legal system and science and scientists. And I just think that those kinds of ways of bridging stuff is another thing that potentially a lot of immersive theatre artists can really, really play a leading role in, um, in terms of those kind of reconstructive qualities the theatrical elements of so many things like the law and like science and stuff like that you start to realize as, as you're all you know sarah and yourself were saying that these things are not as separate as we thought and that is really really exciting and is a source of sustaining that energy going forward i think mm. 
And it's interesting, I've been, and it kind of brings us right, right back round actually to the beginning of our conversation and, and language. Um, I've been to quite a few conferences that are on VR and AR during lockdown, as well as going to immersive stuff. And the languages that are being used across those, what's still in reality quite separate disciplines and approaches is so similar, but they mean very different things as well. And um, I'm really interested in, in those languages and those categorizations and the way that we kind of label and mark and document and archive those things. And so I wanted to kind of end really with kind of posing the eye rolling question actually that I've asked every practitioner I've ever spoken to on the podcast, which is what do you think of the word immersive? And it is usually, especially now, induces a massive eye roll and a kind of sigh <laughs> because it's become a bit of a dirty word. <laughs> so I just wanted to get each of your thoughts on, on, on what it might mean to you in some ways. My kind of um, approach to immersive in an academic way, and I'll probably go more to a personal way, is I kind of go with Josephine Macon's kind of the three elements to this work, which is kind of um, how the senses are used and how audience um, participation and the space and how those three kind of elements all come together. And I think when they're done really, really well, that creates an immersive experience. But the next layer is that kind of moment of transformation, that little moment that makes you connect with yourself, maybe personally, maybe through a memory or a smell that's a sensation that just takes you to a place um, or just triggers something from your past that you'd forgotten about, that you hadn't thought about from a long time, or it doesn't come. It's just a sensation, a feeling, a tingle, something in, in your body that, um, um, that is something that you haven't, don't always feel on an everyday basis. It's a kind of a magical experience that connects you back to yourself and to the people that you're sharing this kind of experience with. I think that's what immersive is for me. And it goes back to that 2009 performance of Felt Like a Kiss, where I felt like a child running through this labyrinth of kind of experiences and, but also gathering this story at the same time and just adrenaline pumping around my body and I know it can be more sophisticated than that I know I know that but that that as an experience has stayed with me more than any kind of stage performance in many ways mm -hmm. so it's kind of I always kind of come back to that like bodily sensations of, of experiencing that work so for me I suppose that's what immersive is for me is that combination of things but also a deeper layer of kind of the, how you connect personally with the the work as well and the people with you so it's almost like a convergence. Yeah. In yeah. some ways. Yeah. In, in, in and of you. Yes, definitely, definitely. I think that's what immersive is for me. And that's why I find it so exciting. Because it's so present. It's putting you so present in the moment that I'm not thinking about the tea and what, what, what time I've got to pick the kids up from school or any of that. None of that can come in because I'm just so in the, the present moment because of the conditions an artist has set up or... Yeah, because my body's so connected physically and emotionally and intellectually to the work. It's, I think it's those things. And I find that really exciting because I think we are so in our heads and it's really difficult to, to be in the moment and be present. And Adrian Howe's work was just so beautiful in that way because that's kind of what, that's what he wanted for us, what he wanted for his audience members. And I think to be able to do that, even just for like half an hour, an hour, is like, that's, 
an amazing experience for individuals and yeah it's that's it terry do you want to go next yeah I was thinking that I guess in some ways it feels like that thing of when work goes from avant-garde to establishment isn't it where um it's the casualty of your own success of immersive theatre that inevitably then you get people and I, I think it was Lingardo who talked about this a few years ago about you know people jumping on the bandwagon of the name immersive when it's not even immersive and I've definitely been to performances where I've gone this is immersive. <laughs> You've called it immersive, but it really isn't. And I, I think I follow Sarah's thoughts around that those triad of things of you know senses, audience, and space, and the interrelationships between those three. Um, and I think because of my influence from Ewan Brioc, where he incorporated mindfulness into the work that he was doing, heavily influenced by um, Enrique Vargas and his company Teatro de los Centros in um, Spain. That, that idea of presence is so important being in the here and now um, but for me I kind of feel in two minds about this stuff because if if people go into an escape room for example which is very popular form at one end of the extreme of this stuff that I think has come out of this experience economy and immersion if people love that and it gives them something creative I think that's so valuable because it's the potential segue into other experiences. It's like falling down the rabbit hole, isn't it, in Alice in Wonderland, that you start then chasing more experiences. So they might go from that to secret cinema and find themselves, you know, in one of their experiences, you know, um, and then from there find themselves, you know, moving on to something that's perhaps more unusual or less well-known within the immersive um, world. I think what's really interesting was that um, the word intimate seems to be coming, becoming very popular again. And I remember reading an article in 2010 in Total Theatre by Charlotte Smith talking about even then with a lot of um, intimate work, um, the cliches of, you know, darkly lit spaces with candles and incense and, you know, all those things. And yes, they are cliches, but I think if you look at, you know, things like the Huga, the Dutch uh, Danish movement that's become really popular. Like, that's what people want, actually. Away from the busyness of things, they want that moment to pause, to step in and to feel something. Um, so I, I don't necessarily, I think this is also culturally cross-connected somehow with our social way of being as well as the way society's been structured. Um, yeah, I think I think the terminology, and I look, this was from James Freeze. I remember when I was doing my uh, Viber, and James was my external examiner for my PhD Viber. Is that slipperiness terminology, and him saying to me, "Stop trying to box everything in." And I remember at the time being like, "Oh, but isn't that what we do? Isn't that what academics do?" And over time, I have gone, "James is absolutely right. Absolutely, stop trying to box things in. Let the terminology be slippery, and let's not worry about it too much." Mm. a bit of elasticity i think is uh where interesting things happen isn't it is in is in the stretch and the give and the take and the slip <laughs> james do you want to round us off with your thoughts uh, wow <laughs> so um i guess 
like you, Joe, and like all of us, I've been on a journey with the word, I feel. Um, and I'm more relaxed about it now because I feel like if it's a brand which is youthful and gets people into theatre because they're excited by the word, that's fantastic. And it's easy for us to be snobbish about it as academics. But I, I think words are words. Words are inadequate. And they are um, symbols of something elastic, as you say. And um, all the key words in theatre and all the key words in culture are massively inadequate. The same thing happened with postmodern, neoliberal, um, and within theatre, especially words like naturalism and realism, really problematic. I guess, so I'm, I'm more relaxed about it. I do, I, I listen to George and talking about uh, Zoo UK and, and how that word is just the thing that he's been on a journey with um, and the him and um, Persis Jade have been on a journey with. And I, I understand that. I think it can be useful if you're getting exposure for your work and people are coming to see your work. Um, I, um, as you know, I edited a book called Reframing Immersive Theatre, which I was born out of my frustration at the time with um, the ways that the, the, that kind of boxing off that Terry was talking about was something that, that happened. But now I realise the boxing off can be really useful. Um, so I, I cringe a little bit when people say this is immersive theatre because I go, well, actually... Really, the value of immersive theatre isn't saying it's this. The value is is going, it's always changing and it's dynamic and it never settles into one thing. And if that is what it signifies, I think it's a really useful signifier. Thank you. I think um, I'm the same. I, I, was, I used to feel the same as Terry, actually, quite kind of like, how do we start to draw these things apart? Um, and for me, actually, the biggest issue is no longer immersive or immersion or immersivity or that. It's actually the theatre bit of it that I think actually is the biggest sticking point and the biggest problematic bit. I don't want to say too much because I'm like working on my monograph at the moment and it's exactly about all of those things. So again, it's that kind of strange protection as well because I've been working on it for like 10 years. I will, I will get it done. <laughs> but yeah, for me, it's theatre. Theatre is... is sticky for me you can't tease us with that you've got to tell us a little tiny bit more about that. so is this coming out of the notion of because i know you've done a load of work with audiences and putting the audiences kind of at the center of stuff and working with the, the idea of the liminal and the liminoid and things like that is it about is it continuing with that yeah it's very much actually going to be about play and the way that serious or um deep play functions across what I see as kind of a, a large spectrum, but trying to start to draw out the distinctions between not so much immersion, but the distinction between theatre and maybe some other forms and some newer hybrid forms or, and some really established forms like, you know, uh, role playing that comes from, you know, D&D &D and all of those kinds of things. And I, I just want to start to not box them in, but just start to talk about the way that play operates within that and the different levels that different offerings and invitations give different amounts of intimacy or agency and that's I guess what I'm really interested in and how problematic the word theatre is in actually closing those things down and excluding um, lots of audiences who've actually come to this because they're gamers or because they're interested in puzzles or because they're interested in lots of other things and that's how they've come into this and so I guess in some ways yeah I'm looking at how play functions 
uh, across those what I see as a spectrum of different types of engagement and intimacy and activity and just trying to draw out actually some of their lineages saying it's, it's kind of parallel and it has some theatrical elements but actually this this has its lineage in something quite different and, and some of the, the things that are brought to that in terms of play and mechanic come actually from this lineage and from from this discipline area rather than necessarily from theatre and um, I think theatre can be yeah an excluding term and so that's I've been working on like I said for 10 years um, and when I did my PhD no one was using the term immersive so I've come from a real kind of different kind of all the other language because of course we know there's been actually work that has the audience at the heart of it is 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 older than you know everything else <laughs> One thing I know, Sarah, one thing very quickly to say to sort of go, get us back to what we talked about right at the beginning is this thing of we are developing this MA and we're doing it across a school of art which, uh, where, where they, they've just started. They've been doing a year or two of an immersive arts MA and we're going to integrate our immersive performance MA with that. But actually, the crossover is extremely limited between, you know, in terms of where we're starting from. Um, so the people running that know a bit about Marshmallow Laser Feast and companies like that and have worked with them and brought in great people doing the other and But actually, there is a lot of, those lineages you're talking about are rich and there are, they are definitely different and distinct. And so the word, the word immersive in a way, kind of as you were describing, almost signifies a gap rather than it signifies anything filling that gap, you know? And I think that's really interesting. But it needs negotiating. It always needs negotiating. And that's what I want to start to do. And it's just the beginning. It, it's kind of like going to be an offering of saying these, in my experience as someone who, because I always come at it from that, from that kind of embodied, I only really ever talk about work I've definitely experienced myself and that I've been to because I come at it from that kind of audience perspective. And so just starting to say of all the things I've seen in the last 15 years and all the things that I've been to, these are where I see some of these things coming from and, and why play functions like that because of that lineage or because of that heritage and not necessarily that's my big frustration i get very frustrated with everything being called immersive theater from things you know uh, from like escape room to to adrian howe's work and I, that that I, I have a frustration is and i think there's a need to open up and start those conversations and so hopefully that's what the monograph will start to do um yeah uh, I just need to actually get down and write it. I've done all the research. I've done lots of the reading. I've got it already kind of planned and everything. It's just, you know, having babies and uh, death and family and stuff like that have pushed it back. And then with all this now, we've got such tight deadlines to get all our work completed for our students incoming. Every time I clear a gap, I'm like, right, I'm going to get, I'm going to clear this gap. And I'd actually got a sabbatical from work, but they've all been cancelled now. So to do it as well so i'm like i oh, need to get writing <laughs> but this again is, is a frustration i think that all of us feel is especially if we're involved in practice because practice takes up so much more energy so much more labor so much more time so much more finance and resource so to then trying to find the space i'm always in awe actually of colleagues who do manage to to constantly push out writing i'm like how <laughs> i have yeah. no idea <laughs> writing by my wife who uh yeah so i've got to find other forms of therapy now i think <laughs> <laughs> but i think having conversations like this is a really nice way as well to start to 
chew up some of these things and just mull them over and start to open up some of those conversations because we're all we have very little opportunities I think even of us working in our disciplines to have chats like this and I'm pleased that we've been able to and I'm hoping you know there's going to be three or four uh, chats like this across all of us and then maybe we could try and do something I don't know hugely ambitious afterwards where we all try and have a big, big chat together. But maybe we could get some money to do a conference or something similar to try and do that. I don't know. <clears throat> but I just wanted to say thank you very, very much for taking time out because I know pretty much all of you are on leave, uh, as am I today, <laughs> uh, and joining me and talking about kind of all of these things. But as, as ever in academia, work is never just work, is it? It's our, it's our, our passion and our our lives so <laughs> thank you very much for joining me thank you joanna thank you it's been a pleasure lovely to see you yeah yeah lovely thank you thank you i really hope you enjoyed that second episode of tate scholar uh, and that you found it interesting and insightful as to what's happening at the moment in terms of research and scholarship within the area of immersive interactive and audience centric work it's been a real privilege to have some of these conversations, um, but more than anything, to give you, the listeners, access to some of the things and thoughts that are happening within scholarship at the moment in the UK. This is something that's such a kind of at the heart of my everyday lived experience, and it's been a real pleasure to have the opportunity to share that with you folks who listen to the usual Tate series so I hope it is interesting and that you are finding it engaging again please do reach out and get in touch with me I am extremely busy all the time but they always say if you want something done ask a busy person so know that if you do get in touch with me I will respond even if it is a little slowly at the moment <laughs> so you can reach me on talking about immersive theatre at gmail.com that's talking about immersive theatre at gmail.com uh, and again, this episode obviously was recorded back in August and the next episode coming up uh, has the same uh, sort of format and was also recorded in August. So what I'm trying to do is get these out to you fairly swiftly back to back um, before I hopefully find some time to record the next round for you, um, which is very interesting as we start to potentially head into another lockdown here in the UK. But thank you very much for listening. Do get in touch and let me know what you think and feel. And um, you'll hear from me again very shortly. <laughs> <laughs>